Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vakalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. And I'm joined by Rebecca McKenna, who is out with her debut novel. It is called Don't Forget the Girl. It's available everywhere. And Rebecca is a native Iowan from over on the eastern side of the state. And Rebecca, as I welcome you in here... The novel I first came onto my radar because it's set in Iowa City, and I've had such magical, wonderful, memorable times there in that city, but can you kind of set this up for us? Because there's a lot going on here, there's different perspectives, and I don't want to give anything away because it is a thriller. <laughs> sure. So, um, Don't Forget the Girl is told in two different timelines. Um, in the past, we're in 2003, and we're following um, the three friends in their freshman year of college at the University of Iowa. Um, and one of those is uh, a girl named Abby. And we know pretty early on from the other timeline, which is 12 years later, um, that Abby is presumed um, to be a victim of a, a now notorious serial killer. And so in the past, we kind of follow um, the last few months of her life um, to sort of see what happens. And then in the present, we're following her two friends because uh, the now notorious serial killer is about to be executed and they're sort of dealing with this true crime circus and um, seeing their friend's memory overshadowed by her suspected killer. I think it's it was ironic to me that the name of the serial killer in the book is John Allen Blue. And I guess we're kind of getting into one of the themes behind the book. We seem to know the middle name of serial killers. I mean, I don't know the middle name of some of my closest friends, but we seem to know John yeah. Wayne Gacy. We know yes. uh, Theodore Robert Bundy. The, the yeah. victims of the serial killers, we can't even tell you their first name, let alone a middle or a last name. Why do you think that shakes out that way in society? Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're latching on to kind of like what became my obsession when I was um, writing this, which was just like I could go into any bookstore and find out, like, the childhood pet of Ted Bundy. Um, but these victims, like, yeah, we don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. And I think, I don't know, I think part of it is that we sort of we sort of say that we want to know why or how someone could do something like that. And we get sort of obsessed with that aspect of it rather than, like, who was the collateral of what happened. But I don't know. I think ultimately... In addition to that, there is this sort of, like, glamorizing that kind of happens where we sort of feel like if if the person who did this was some, like, big, spectacular force of evil, then maybe it's, like, less sad to us. Um, there's something, like, I don't know, more, more glamour to it when, like, the truth is these people do these things for reasons they don't even understand. And if you read any bios um, of these killers in any detail. Like, they're just really sad, messed up people. And um, so, I, yeah, I just really got obsessed with, with where we put the weight. And it's, uh, it seems like it's always on the killer rather than the victim. It seems like as the killer is on the loose, when murders happen, uh, homicides happen, and I'm thinking specifically of the Idaho murders that happened yeah. late last year. And I don't know that that, that really qualifies as a serial killer, but the... the uh, we knew all kinds of things about the victims leading up to when the killer was caught. Now we haven't heard word one about the victims. So is And it seems more localized coverage. Does it seem like people care about the interesting lives of victims? Because a lot of times they're way more interesting than the serial killer's lives. Does it yeah. seem like the, once the killer's caught, then all of a sudden these victims become anonymous? Or are they anonymous throughout the whole thing? That's really interesting. You know, I think it, it almost might be the type of thing. I'm, I'm not sure, but what it makes me think of is that we're sort of interested in the victims 
when it feels like it's an active threat, and we're sort of like, we want to know about the victims as it could protect us. So if we, if we read about the victims while this person is on the loose, maybe we can see patterns in our lives or things that we should or shouldn't do to, like, protect ourselves. Then as soon as they're not an active threat, then we're sort of done paying attention to them. I've read several novels that have been set in Iowa City throughout the years, and that stands to reason because a lot of fantastic writers have come out of Iowa. And I know you spent time at the University of Iowa attending school there, but when you sit down to set a book there, how do you pick and choose the elements of Iowa City that you're going to incorporate in the story? Because there's so many different areas of that yeah. town. It's very diverse. How do, you, how do you narrow it down? I don't know that I did it um, consciously. I just think that I, I sort of gravitated to the places that I maybe missed the most. Um, I'm in Indiana now, and so I do think a huge part of studying the book in Iowa City was just homesickness and, and really missing that place. Um, so I think places that I missed, but I also think that there, there's just a lot of really atmospheric parts of Iowa City. Um, the book kind of centers around um, the Black Angel statue in Oakland Cemetery. Um, I, I think that there are just a lot of really interesting kind of set pieces in that city. I think anybody of a certain age has been to Iowa City, has been to the Black Angel, and, and yes. there's all sorts of different stories about that there in Oakland Cemetery. And so I, I did smile when I read that because I remember going out there with a friend of mine several years ago and, and seeing that, that famous statue, of uh, locally famous. But there was another scene in the book that I, I actually chuckled, and I know I probably shouldn't have, but I did. It was <laughs> when there was a serial killer on the loose, the campus handed out these whistles for people wow. to carry around the campus. And it reminded me of when I was at a parade one time, and the somebody, instead of throwing candy, threw whistles. Well, for the rest of the parade, we had to hear these whistles being blown. <laughs> Did that come from a real-life experience? Because the whistles didn't work as intended in the book. Yeah, so the scene that you're talking about, um, they there, there's this serial killer on the loose, so they give out these safety whistles to all the, all the students, and um, then the students, you know, just start blowing them whenever, and then they become useless, and everyone just... <laughs> starts to tune them out. Um, no, it didn't come from, from a real... I, I teach at a, a college um, here locally in Indianapolis, and it just I was just thinking about the, the different things that our administration or, or schools in general try to do to sort of help students, protect students, and how, like, the best intentions backfire. And so that just felt like really what would happen. You would have this great intention, we're going to protect people and hand out the safety device, and then people are just like, eh, we're going to use them whenever we want, and then everyone tunes them out. You use a literary device here that I have to admit I don't see very often anymore, and you wrote some of the book in, one of the perspectives was written in the second person, and yeah. I think that's very difficult to do. So why did you choose to use that perspective, and do you have to get out of a different mindset? Because I don't know how much that's taught anymore, second person. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that it was, you know, I, I have read, obviously, pieces that were done in second person. I don't know how much it was taught, like, in my MFA, for example, or, like, how many um, texts we studied closely that did that. Um, it really kind of came organically. I knew I wanted to have Abby's perspective in the book, um, but I was really having trouble getting her voice. And then one day I was just sort of, you know, trying to get into that voice and I started to do second person and it just, like, that was one of those great moments in writing where it just was sort of like, 
you know, kind of capturing lightning where I felt like, oh, this is it, this is the voice, and that that really kind of gave energy to those those flashback sections. I'm chatting with Rebecca McKenna about her brand new novel, Don't Forget the Girl. It is set in Iowa City and a few locations around Iowa for that part. Uh, Rebecca is uh, it's her debut novel, and she is a native of Iowa, Bettendorf, right? Yes. And so, it, with the time you spent in Iowa City, uh, was about the early 2000s. What 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 do you? What's so magical about that place that makes you keep going back there? Because it seems like people that have been there never really leave. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think Iowa City. One, it's such a it's such an interesting place. Um, I, I just don't think that people people have so many stereotypes about Iowa in general. <laughs> I think we all any any Iowa native knows that people get us confused with Idaho. They think we all grew up on farms, things like that. And I think Iowa City especially kind of rejects those stereotypes about what Iowa is, what Iowans are. And so, um, yeah, I just thought it was a really magical place to kind of figure out who you were, what you were interested in. Um, I went there, <laughs> to be honest, I went there because it was in-state tuition, you know, and it was going to be a, a good education that was economical. But, you know, anything you wanted to study, you could study at Iowa. They had, you know, almost every major, and so it was just such a great place to kind of explore who you wanted to become. And then I also think that in terms of writing the book, that's such an interesting time of life to follow with people when they're kind of trying to figure out who they want to become. And then especially heartbreaking with this character of Abby who, you know, she's trying to figure that out, but she's never going to be able to become it because she is, you know, going to be murdered, we know, at the beginning of the book. Some of the action takes place present day, some's 20 years old, and everything in between. And so when you sit down to get into these characters, do you have to channel your inner youth, or is the fact that you work around mm-hmm. young people teaching in a college now help you channel what uh, teenage girls, uh, early adolescent girls think? Because it, it seems like, to me, once you're beyond that point in life, it's hard to go back and try to remember how you really thought as a college kid. Yeah, that's, well, I, I, do think teaching, I do think teaching helps a lot to kind of keep me connected to that past version of myself. I also, I also did keep diary entries, journal entries when I was that age, and so I did read through some of those. And, oh, man, it is it is so tough and so embarrassing to read through, but also was incredibly helpful to really remember kind of, like, what you valued and kind of, like, what your worldview was. But, yeah, it, it is it is weird to sort of try to reach out um, to that, that kind of, like, past self. As a as a writer, it's a it's a form of art, and I I always am interested in books that come out and even movies that come out that that have something you're supposed to take away from. And you know, I, all the way back to Roots when when that mm-hmm. novel came out that uh, we took away from it. As the artist, though, as the writer, are you concerned with the larger picture as you're writing it, or does that affect the art when you think of how this is going to be perceived? And you just write it and let it kind of fall where it while, where it does. That's such a good question. Um, I think that I think that if you're too concerned, or if I, if I am too concerned with the larger picture, it really quickly becomes didactic, and um, I think people sort of resist that. So I think obviously there is sort of a I don't know value system or, or perspective that you're kind of writing um, toward, but I think that 
for me, the focus has to be on the characters and telling their story. Um, and anything sort of beyond that, I think really quickly, readers sort of feel an agenda, and I think it can kind of repel people. The main characters we hear about, Abby, Bree, and Chelsea, I thought it was cute that it went ABC. And so as a reader, it's very easy to remember their names as you, as you <laughs> think about it. Was there anything magical about ABC that came to you as you were trying to name the characters? No, and, you know, I had been writing um, stories and failed novels with Bree since I was 18, um, so she had always sort of been around, and then Chelsea and Abby came later, and it was totally random that I had named them, you know, the a- ABC, and, and then when I realized that, I thought, oh, I've got, I've got to work that in. There was a an interesting element to this that I don't think that I would have picked up on if I was a younger person reading this novel. And that was the fact that college professors have a life that, you know, outside of the classroom that may be more closer to uh, a student's life, uh, various sexual escapades, things like that. And as I, as I read that, I thought about, gosh, if I would have even thought half of this stuff about my professors in college, I, you would have lost a certain amount of respect for them. And so <laughs> can you kind of address that issue as to, as to the, the lives of professors and how they relate to the students. I mean, it, it, it yeah. and you even touch on it with the, the clerical aspect of a, one of them is a minister and right. people, people don't, people hold them on a, on a perch. How does that fit into what you thought about as you wrote? Yeah, I think there's a lot about power dynamics um, in the book. And so I, I think that, you know, part of it is, is just kind of, if you see me on the curtain of these people that we kind of give power to, um, I remember when I was in undergrad, especially at Iowa, especially when I was in my earlier years, you know, these professors are teaching to giant lecture halls, and they just felt so remote and so together, and so then now being a professor myself, it's just, you know, that, that we're human, that isn't the case, and I think particularly, you early on in the book um, learn that Bree is having an affair with a student, um, and a particularly young one, he's like 18, and I kind of, I like to write into perspectives that I have a really hard time understanding. And I've always been someone who really, kind of the power and balance of that, I, I really disapproved of, of the teacher-student relationship. And so I, I wanted to see if I could sort of write to a place where I could have some empathy for someone who might do that. Um, and I think I think I kind of got there with her, where throughout the book you sort of understand some dynamics from her past that make her more likely to do that. Um, but to go back to your question, yeah, I think I do think that in general, you know, we're all human, and if you know people in these various roles of, of power or authority, if we really knew what went on, we might be kind of surprised. Well, it was just an amazing uh, book. It ran about 350 or so pages, and it and it felt to me like I was reading a 100-page short story. Just how tight oh, this book was, book was written. The book is "Don't Forget the Girl." It's a novel from Rebecca McKenna. The book is available everywhere. It's set in Iowa, so everybody around Iowa will recognize a lot of places, especially if you've ever been to Iowa City. Rebecca, just a fantastic offering here, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. Oh, you're the best friend.